as you can uh, see from your notes uh, that I provided, which I really should have provided last week. Uh, after, after the message last week, I thought, you know, I should have given him some notes. It would be easier to follow. There's so many scripture texts to look at uh, as we examine or finish our examination, really, of 1 Timothy 3.16, which is in sort of a key spot in this epistle. He's already, remember, begun the epistle talking about the problem of false teaching. He's talked about the leadership of the church and who can appropriately be in the leadership of the church and what their roles are and reminding Timothy of his role along the way. And then uh, beginning in verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so you that may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And of course, uh, the way that Timothy ought to conduct himself in the church of God has been implied and stated quite a bit already up to this point. Uh, he's supposed to teach the truth, defend the truth, do so in a godly manner, and uh, be an example to all the flock in the process. And then Paul says in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And you recall last week we focused in on what that, that meant. It's truth that is revealed by God that we know and can only know because he's revealed it. And it's, uh, it says without controversy here in the New King James. Remember, that's the idea is it's non-debatable. Everybody who's a true believer accepts what he's about to say as true. And uh, then he states it, what it is after his introduction. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. And we examined those things last week. And today we'll look at the rest of it, where he says, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, received, or believed rather, on in the world, and received up in glory. Remember last week we, we began <coughs> examining this text, and I highlighted that most biblical scholars, commentators, understand this to be an early Christian hymn that Paul was citing, and that the Ephesian believers would already have known. I think that's probably likely. Whether Paul wrote it himself or not, He's certainly in including it here, at least this portion of it, if, if it is him that he's citing. Uh, he certainly is uh, presuming that it is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Remember, there were other apostles, there were other prophets, uh, and uh, sometimes they had hymns. If you read in 1 Corinthians, you'll discover that when he's discussing the gifts and how they were conducting their worship and actually correcting a lot of problems. One of the things he says there is each one as a prophecy or a tongue or whatever, or a hymn. So sometimes uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, hymns were created, and this is probably one of them. At any rate, uh, with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll try and get our minds back where they need to be to understand this text and why it's here. Holy Father, I, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins, that he rose from the dead, ascended to your right hand, and he reigns over everything. And he is there is also not our king, just our king, but our, our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. And we thank you that we get to know him as our Lord and Savior. Lord, it, it is our prayer that you would fill us with 
renewed faith this morning. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and with understanding so that we might correctly ascertain why this passage is here and what we're supposed to take away from it and how it's supposed to encourage us, how it's supposed to strengthen us, how it's supposed to make us more like Christ. We ask all these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember again as we began our study of this verse last week and we were considering it as, if, if not a hymn, it certainly is a poetic section that Paul has written with very short phrases that are clearly intended to, to be suggestive of truth that the church family already knew in Ephesus and understood. As we, I gave an example last week of how we do this with hymns. In fact, there's some of this in the hymns we sang this morning where we imply a lot more than we actually state because you can't include every doctrine or every line of every hymn or you would have a systematic theology text that you sing every week, right? Um, so the, there has to be some of this. Uh, I prefer most of our hymns to be more explicit than less so in stating certain doctrines. But there certainly is nothing wrong with using, as I called it last week, a sort of Christian shorthand that is suggestive of all kinds of things that we already know. And I would put it to you that the reason that Paul felt safe in doing so with this poetic section or this what could have been a hymn here is that he had already spent a good three years teaching in Ephesus. We, all, we also also have, and we'll read some of it this morning again, a previous epistle that he wrote to the Ephesians. And so we know, for example, from the book of Romans, how Paul typically taught the gospel. Uh, when he wrote to the Ephesians later, he presupposed having taught the very same kinds of things there. And so we know the depth of teaching that he had. So I would put to you that Paul felt safe in citing something like this because he knew they would all understand correctly what he was suggesting or that they should. So I, I, what I'm saying there is uh, hymns like this work best where people actually understand what they're alluding to, right? Uh, they work best in congregations that are well taught. Um, so maybe if we're going to use hymns like that, then we should make sure we teach people really well first so they know what they're singing. And I appreciate uh, Ken's... Uh, attempt to do that this morning. I think it was very effective. For those of us who forget what Hosanna means, maybe we remember now, we won't forget, right? What we're singing when we sing that. Well, Paul was assuming they'd know what they were singing here. Uh, I don't know if he ever stopped them after they sang the first line and made him sing it again or not, but uh, hey, it's effective. It worked, didn't it? <laughs> Good teaching moment there. Um, but he, he is certainly expecting us to think of a lot of things. And so we're going to try to think of the things we think that he wants us to think about because we have all of scripture to help us out. Again, we looked at the first three lines and I'm including as the first line, the introduction, because however this appeared or they knew it beforehand, if, if they did, whether written by Paul or not, it was inspired by the spirit, as I said. As we have it here, we're not supposed to read the following six lines without the introduction. It's a unit as Paul presents it here. And so that's why line one for me is the introduction. And then we looked at how uh, the statement that God or was manifest in the flesh. And we talked about the textual variant there last week. And then what it was mean, meant that he was justified or vindicated in the spirit. How the Holy Spirit uh, demonstrated 
through his works and through what he did through Jesus, that Jesus was truly the Messiah and the Son of God. And now we're ready for this fourth line about, well, at least at first it seems to be, about angels. Uh, uh, here in uh, where it says, seen by angels. Uh, and this line might seem a bit out of place for some people when, when they first encounter it. Um, again, it's, it, it's a part, apparently, of some hymn or poetic thing that Paul's giving us here that is focused entirely on the saving work of our Lord Jesus and the proclamation of that saving work. And so people say, well, what, what does a line about angels have to do with that, right? Uh, well, when we stop to think about what the line suggests, which is the point of it being there, remember, to make it stop and think, angels, seen by angels, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, if, we, if we've read the Gospels, if we've been well taught by Paul and Ephesus at this point, right, and, and also by other good teachers, um, a lot of things should come to our mind when we think of seen by angels. And so we're going to look at what some of those things are, and we're going to discover that this line isn't really about angels at all, because who was it that was seen by angels? It was Jesus who was seen by angels. So we're supposed to think about how was Jesus seen by angels, and what, why would this line be here, and what are we supposed to think about? Well, first of all, we'll look at a number of examples, but... I mean, we could look at examples of angels announcing the birth of Jesus, for example, and John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. But we're going to start with the actual birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, I'm just going to read this text for you, and we're going to see at least four references to angels here. Um, we read this passage every Christmas. Um, now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you in this day, or this day rather, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That, that is, the Messiah. Right and Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels, it's plural now because the heavenly host, the multitude of heavenly hosts are angels, right? Um, so when the angels had gone away from the earth, or them into heaven, rather, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice the angels spoke, but they said the Lord's made it known because they know that these angels were speaking the word of God to them, that they were speaking from the Lord. So when we, when we sing a line or read a line that says, seen by angels, well, we think about passages like this. Um, late, angels later assisted our Lord Jesus in his ministry. For example, after his temptation by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew tells us in Matthew 4.11 that the devil then left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. They served him. They helped him. Now, he'd been 40 days without food. 
We don't know all the help that they gave him, uh, but we're told that they helped him. We also know that an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us about this in Luke 22, verses 41 to 44. We're told that Jesus with, with, was withdrawn from the disciples he was with there, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. And there he has in mind the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on him when he died on the cross, which was coming. This is what he's praying about here. Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. How do you, how do you get the strength to pray a prayer like that? Well, in this case, an angel helped him out somehow, right? Strengthened him to continue praying even more fervently for the Father's will to be done. There were also angels who bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. For this, we'll turn to the Gospels of Matthew and John. I'll read to you first from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, <laughs> I should think so, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. It always strikes me that the angel didn't seem to care that the guards were scared. He just didn't want these women who were believers to be scared. Guards probably had reason to be afraid. The women, you know, they believed in Jesus. But notice what he announced the resurrection of Christ to them and gave them the mission of going and telling other people about it. In John 20, verses 11 through 14, we're told that Mary, referring to Mary Magdalene, as verse 1 and verse 18 of that text makes clear, stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, and she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. <laughs> Initially, sometimes they didn't recognize Jesus and in his resurrected body. So, we see all these key incidents in Jesus' life where angels are present, witnessing what happened, but not just witnessing what happened, witnessing to it, to others, telling them about it. And, and we're going to see later when we, when we read a text on the ascension, they were there too. When he ascended, a witnessing to his ascension, 
Um, but for now, I think we can agree that the reference to angels here automatically leads us to recall crucial events in Jesus' life and messianic ministry, or at least it should. That's why it's here. This, this isn't really about angels. It's about Jesus. And all those passages we read that talk about the role of the angels aren't ultimately about angels. They're about Jesus. The angels just play a role in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so you can, you can see why this line would be included here. If you, if you think about what it means, all these kinds of things, if you're a well-taught believer, right, should come to your mind. How God, not just through the Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus, but through the angels did so, you might say. And these are the kinds of events we're called to bear witness to ourselves. And that's what the next line is all about. Where he says, preached among the Gentiles. Preached among the Gentiles or the nations. Now, when I read this line, I'm immediately reminded of the Great Commission as recorded by Matthew. Matthew 28. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, and this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, remember, before his ascension. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So our risen Lord has all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Ethnos, same word here, preached among the Gentiles. Could be translated, go therefore and make disciples of all the Gentiles. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course, there, nations is the preferred translation because we're assuming it's Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts. It's all nations, not just Gentiles. So sometimes this term is inclusive that way, and sometimes it's not just Jews, but Gentiles too, Right? All the nations are, we presuppose it's going to the, the Jews, but it's supposed to also go to the rest of the nations as well. I'm also reminded uh, of the promise found in the book of Revelation. For example, in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, after these things I looked, John writes, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, Tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. We read a passage about that this morning. There's going to be a different kind of Palm Sunday, if you will, in heaven, right? And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that's a vision of what's going to happen. This commission to take the gospel to all nations will one day succeed. And there will be people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, worshiping. These are the kinds of thoughts perhaps we should have when we read this line preached among the Gentiles. But of course, the book of Revelation had probably not yet been written when Paul wrote his first epistle to Timothy. So what would have come to mind for them? They'd have probably thought of the Great Commission too, I would think. Um, but... I would assume that what would have come to mind for the Ephesians would no doubt have been from their own experience and from Paul's previous teaching among them. Most of them were Gentile believers. 
And they were believers because Paul preached the gospel to them. They would had to have thought of that when they, when they heard this line. And of course, in a context in which false teaching is now coming in and causing a problem, this would have been a really good for, thing for them to think about. That the truth had preached, been preached to them previously, and that's what they should be sticking to, right? So it's a good reason to remind them uh, of this important fact here that Jesus had declared that the gospel should go to all the nations. And remember, the Ephesian church had come to be as a result of Paul's previous gospel ministry. Remember, he also taught them for a good three years. They were well taught by him. And then he wrote an epistle to them, as I alluded to earlier. So it's easy to imagine, I think, how grateful they would have been when hearing or repeating this line. We get to know the gospel too. We get to know the Savior too. We get to receive the grace of God too. It would have reminded them of their experience. Now we could read a lot from Ephesians, but I'd like to read you a portion of Ephesians 3. Maybe they would have thought about these kinds of things. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. There's that key term again that we've seen in 1 Timothy 3.16. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Can you imagine being in Ephesus and hearing this line, something you probably sung in worship, right? Preached among the Gentiles. What that would mean to you? It would remind you that you're saved because Jesus sent someone to proclaim the gospel to you. And that you're not some second-class citizen as a Gentile as you were made to feel uh, if you were a God-fearer before amongst the Jews. No, no, no. Fellow heirs. They're all one in Christ. These are the kinds of things you would think of and you would think of the tremendous grace of God to you. This is what we should think of when we hear preached among the Gentiles. Because it's true of us too. Unless, unless we're here and we're Jewish. In which case, we should be thinking, thank you, God, that you've given the gospel and made fellow heirs with the Jewish believers, all the Gentile saints. You've broken down that middle wall of partition. We get to be one. Some of the early fathers called it the third race. Christianity is the third race, they would say. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's Christians. They're the third race. 
This is the kind of thing we should think of. We should be filled with deep gratitude and praise to God that he's provided a gospel witness to each and every one of us. But he did more than that since he also ensured that we would believe the gospel. That leads us to the next line, which is about the conversion of sinners to faith in Christ. It says, believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Once again, we can imagine what might have first come to mind for the Ephesian believers, which would be their own experience of conversion, about which Paul had also so powerfully reminded them in the epistle to the Ephesians. They'll read from chapter 2. This is what we should think of when we think of believed on that Jesus was preached among the Gentiles. All of us, I think, fit that. And believed on in the world. We... He wasn't just proclaimed to us in some way. We believed. How did that happen? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Some people have read this and said, we're going to be forever like trophies of God's grace in heaven. Every time an angel looks at one of us, what's he going to think, right? What are we all going to think when we see each other there? Wow, look what God did. He saved that guy. He saved that woman. He saved me. Then he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Believed on in the world. Why? God made us alive together in Christ and gave us the gift of faith. That's why. This is what the Ephesians should have recalled. This is what we should recall. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our Lord Jesus has been believed on in the world by all of us, just as he was believed on in the world by those first century Christians. We've all believed on him as the risen and ascended Lord who will one day return, and that's the point of the final line. It's about the ascension of Christ, in my view. It says he was received up, or I think the ESV and the NASB have taken up. It's another way of, of, of accurately translating this. Received up or taken up in glory. Now this particular line has led to a fair amount of debate among commentators. It's why I put off teaching it, because I wanted to be sure that my understanding it as a reference to the ascension was, was correct. Um, and I, I feel that it is. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, and I'll tell you why. But, but it seems at first to be out of place. 
what we read in the previous line seems to follow chronologically. Uh, incarnation, his, his messianic ministry, how the angels were involved throughout that time. Then suddenly he's being preached among the Gentiles, among whom are the Ephesians, and uh, they're believing in Christ. This seems to follow a chronological pattern uh, that goes past when Jesus would have ascended already, right? And so what's the ascension being talked about at the end for? And so they say, well, it, it must not be a reference to the ascension. It must be some kind of an opaque reference to the second coming of Christ. Well, I think there's some accuracy to that. But it's, I think, specifically referring to the ascension and then what that makes you think of when you think about the ascension. What do you think of when you think of the ascension? Think about it. Jesus as the ascended Lord. What's it bring to your mind? Well, what is, what's he doing now? He's reigning as the king. He's our great high priest. He's planning to come back. Right? Uh, he's preparing a place for us. And he's going to return. These are the kinds of things that we would think about. So you can see why. I don't think that whoever wrote this, and it, whether Paul wrote it or whether he is affirming the truth of this, felt the need to be strictly chronologically accurate. I think that they were wanting to present theological truths in a certain way. And by saving the ascension to the end, that was a way to get you to think of that whole complex of events. Ascension, reign in heaven, second coming. Um, now, I think it, it specifically refers to the ascension because this Greek word, translated received up or taken up, it's actually used for people who pick things up and stuff like that. It's used in the New Testament quite a bit. But when it's used about Jesus, it takes on a special reference to the ascension. For example, in Mark 16, 19, we're told that after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up or taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. So when we think of Jesus being taken up in glory, what are we thinking of? Well, the glorified Jesus was taken up into glory, into this glorious position at the Father's right hand, we could think of that, and that means he's reigning, right? Acts 1, 1 and 2, Luke writes, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that what we're getting in the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles. It, it, we call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it could maybe better be called the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, he then says, until the day in which he was taken up. There's the same Greek word. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the Apostles whom he had chosen. One of those commandments we read earlier, the Great Commission. Later on in the same chapter, we're told that Jesus was talking to the, to the disciples there in Jerusalem. That when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. There's a different word this time. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These would be angels. They keep showing up in white apparel, we've already seen. Right? That's who, who we have here. 
who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up, there's the same word, 1 Timothy 3.16, for taken up in glory, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So a well-taught believer, when he, when he reads that Jesus was taken up in glory, what's he going to think? He ascended to the Father's right hand, he's reigning over everything, and he's coming again. In the same way that he left. That's what the angels said the day he left. Luke said so in his gospel, and Paul told us all about it. So did Luke, so did Barnabas, right? Given this last use of the word, again, we can better understand why the reference to the ascension is reserved for the final line. Because it's packed with all this meaning. And in, in that way, in a roundabout way, it is kind of chronological. It reminds us of what the Apostle Peter said of Jesus, that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. 1 Peter 3.22. So this line was intended not just to remind believers that Jesus is risen and ascended to the Father's right hand, from whence he reigns as king of heaven and earth, but that he's going to return. As the angel said. So we could also think of a passage like what Paul said to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Here he's talking about believers who've died already. And before Jesus returns. We're going to see them again when he returns, is what he's saying. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Taken up in glory, comforting words. When you, when you stop to think about the implication of that statement, what does it suggest? All of this that we've talked about is what it suggests. For those who have been taught, who understand the doctrine that Paul would have taught to the Ephesians. He would have taught them the same things he was teaching to the Thessalonians or the Romans or anywhere else. He taught them these things. So we come to the end of our representation of what Paul says is the mystery of godliness, the truth concerning our Lord Jesus, which he has said is great and beyond question. That was the point of the beginning of the verse, the introduction. So Timothy and the Ephesian church, they needed to remember these things as they were bombarded by false teaching, as I pointed out last week, and I will point out again this week. We're going to be constantly bombarded by false teaching as well. And we need to remember all these foundational truths of the Christian faith. We need to keep our focus on them because sometimes what false teaching does, and we'll see some of this as we get into chapter four, it gets into all kinds of nitpicky trivialities that have nothing to do sometimes with these important doctrines. And by means of that, distract us from these important doctrines. And that's the way that the devil likes to begin to unravel in our thinking these important doctrines and what they mean. He distracts us. 
from them. Through getting us to focus on all kinds of other things and forget these things. Paul doesn't want that to happen. It started to happen in Ephesus. He's reminding them of the things they've been taught. He doesn't want it to happen to us as well. And of course, through this backdoor method, the devil likes to destroy these doctrines. He takes our mind off of them, makes us think, they're not that important, really. And then once he's got us there, right? Once we're talking about silly things that don't matter, as we'll see in chapter 4, uh, what he calls them, wives' fables and things like that. Once we get into these things, and we've got our mind off the ball, then we're in big trouble. Now, we're going to have to talk about secondary and tertiary issues, and it's not wrong to do that. It's wrong to do that without keeping at the center what should be at the center. Paul doesn't want that to happen. Because he's got some things to say about some of the stuff that they're going to, that they've been challenging believers there with. As we'll see, we have the truth about Jesus, who although God, he became man for the sake of our salvation. We have the truth about how the Holy Spirit vindicated him as the Messiah and the Son of God and all that he said and did. We have a certainty about who he is. Because we have that same witness in our hearts, the Holy Spirit, don't we? Bearing witness with, by, in the word, in our hearts. We have the truth that he was witnessed by angels and all that that means. It's, it's a way of referring to his entire life and ministry. In fact, his, his prenatal life even, right? His pre-birth life. We have the truth of the gospel that was proclaimed to us and that we've all believed. We have the truth that our ascended Lord Jesus reigns over all things from heaven from whence he shall one day return. That's a lot packed in and we've only scratched the surface to these lines when you stop and think about it like you're supposed to. When you don't sing Hosanna without knowing what it means, right? When you sing these lines or read these lines and know what they mean. All this should come back into your mind. So, when you read these lines on your own, did all those things come into your mind? I'll bet you, for most of you, they did. Seen by angels, what does that mean? Many of you probably went right to Jesus' birth <laughs> as the first place. We sing about that every year, right? It's good to sing about that. It's a crucial part of the story of the account of what our Jesus did. Let's pray. Holy Father, uh, it's been my hope and prayer that I be able to help us all understand better what this verse is doing here. For some people, it seems a little out of place, but when you understand the point of it, in the context in which it was given, it's a crucial text in this letter. It's got crucial things we're supposed to always remember and never forget. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to leave here today with a renewed sense of joy, with the, uh, of the salvation we have in Christ, with a renewed sense of zeal to hang on to the gospel. 
with a deeper awareness of why we sing the hymns we sing the way we do, even today. That we're supposed to think lots of deep theological thoughts when we come to praise you. We're supposed to remember all that we can about Jesus and what you've done through him for us when we come to praise you. So help us not to lose sight of what our worship should be about. And Lord, help us as we go forward to be used by you in your continued plan to proclaim the gospel to all nations as we await our Lord's return. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for your kind attention, as always. You're such good hearers of the word.